And so we're going to summarize and wind up our short series on Revelation by looking at these two key chapters. It's part of a bigger portion from Revelation 6 to 8. And the theme we want to explore, I want to explore with you, is the importance of vision. The importance of vision. And let's begin that time, our time, by asking when and why do people lose perspective in life or lose proportion in life? And positively, you know, for here in Singapore, there's a wonderful fruit called durian. So you either love it or you hate it because it's very pungent, a very, very sharp uh, smell. And for those who love it, when you give them a gift of durian to enjoy, they, they are lost. Uh, the smile comes on their faces. They become totally different people. And they, they delight in that so much that if you were to ask them for anything, if, if your dad or your mom loves durians and they're enjoying that durian, but you don't quite like it, and when your dad and mom is enjoying it, you can ask them, Dad, can I play uh, uh, my games a little bit more tonight by an hour or so? Sure! Because they're lost perspective because the durian has made them lose all, all uh, limits on, on life. You ever seen this happen? I brought my uh, grandnephew and nieces who had come from overseas for a holiday, uh, I think one Christmas season, and we brought them to a water theme park. As we brought them to the water theme park, we told them in the car as they got out there, they, they had to be careful, listen to instructions, right? As um, they're crowded and there are things to watch out for. You, you know what happens. So this bunch of kids, right? Uh, five, seven, nine, the moment they got into their swimsuits and was at the theme park, water theme park, they went berserk. They lost all proportion and no matter how many instructions we were shouting at them as uncles, aunties, granduncles, they didn't give two hoots. So sometimes we lose our perspective. We lose all proportion when we are delighting, drowning in things that we, we love. But sometimes we lose perspective in the sorrowful things. Stories told of a family where very sadly the mother died very young from an illness and the teenage son turned inward. He became so sad and depressed. His whole world collapsed. His whole demeanour turned inward and he became a totally different person. He became moody and became mopey. And every day you would just see him walk around with his shoulders hung down. There's no reason for living. But his dad, a good father, tried everything possible every day, right? And tried to give him a new start, move to a new town, move him to a new school, so that he would not have be bogged down by the memories of the old house, the old place, the old school. But nothing worked for him. Nothing brought back a smile and the joy to his life. And in one of his moody moments or mopey moments that led to another quarrel with his dad who was trying his best. The dad couldn't take it anymore. The father couldn't take it anymore. He says, does it always have to be about you? Does it always have to be about you? What about me? You lost your mother, but I lost my wife. Who is hurting more? We are both hurting. And that is so poignant in life. But sometimes we lose perspective, we lose proportion when pain gets out of proportion, when our pleasures grow out of proportion, and then life gets out of hand, especially when we turn from God and allow either extreme of pain or pleasure to overwhelm us. When we read the book of Revelation, the central message is you must never lose perspective of. You must never lose the vision of what? The curtain is drawn back. That's the meaning of the book of Revelation. Revelation actually means God drawing back the curtains, God unveiling as He draws back the curtains for us to see what's behind heaven, the background of spiritual warfare and spiritual reality in heaven. Why does God unveil this? to his church in the first century. Why does he unveil this to John, the Apostle John? Because there was increasing persecution against people who believe in Jesus as their Saviour and their Lord. People who believe in Jesus as the Messiah, God's Messiah, God's end-time King. That's what Messiah means. God's end-time King that has come 
to usher in God's eternal kingdom. So why does God unveil the background, the heavenly realities? There's a warfare between God and Satan versus Satan over us, over our lives, over our loves, over our loyalty. Why does He do that? He does that for a very important reason. Let's read the first chapter. John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you, peace from him, who is, who was, who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. So the first introduction to God is God is the Lord of history. And from Jesus Christ, and what do we know about Jesus? He's the faithful witness. He's the firstborn from among the dead, faithful unto his death on the cross, firstborn from among the dead, because God raised him from the dead, and now he's ruler of the kings on the earth, not the emperors, not the Caesars, not our governments. To him, Jesus, who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us to be a kingdom and priest, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. And so we ask the question again, Revelation, what is it that God is revealing to his church? Then in the first century, now in the 21st century, and to every epoch, every era of his church in a fallen, sinful world. He's taking us to the backdrop, unveils the backdrop of heaven, the spiritual realities, God versus Satan in a warfare. And Jesus has won this warfare so that Jesus will now be the forefront of our lives. If we believe that Jesus is risen, he's no longer the suffering Christ, but the glorious Christ who defeated the devil, washes clean of sin. Now, every waking moment, Every idle moment must be surrendered to Jesus. That's what it means to live with Jesus at the forefront. He's front and centre of our lives. That's why we are taken to the backdrop of heaven. Heaven controls life on earth for His people, the church, you and me who believe in Jesus. So, we've said that one simple way to understand these 22 chapters is there is a starting, what we call the prologue, chapter 1, verse 1 to 8, there is the epilogue, chapter 22, verse 5 to 21. And so it's like a burger. It begins and declares, as we just saw in that verse, that Jesus is now the Lord of history. He's the Alpha and Omega. And then, if He's the Lord of history, we need to ask, do I give honour to that truth? It is the most important truth in the world. He's the Lord of this pandemic. He's the Lord of every pandemic. It is Him who unleashes it. It is Him who will bring it to an end. Do we believe that? If we believe that, then we've got to believe that Jesus is Lord of our story. In between the meat that is there, right, sandwiched between the two buns, top and bottom, is chapter 1, verse 9 to chapter 3, is Jesus speaks to His church. Seven letters to the seven churches, which is actually the one letter from the one Lord by the one Spirit, to his one church in seven places. And he speaks to the church. There are some things he commands about them. There are faithfulness he commands. There are some things that he condemns. There are sinfulness and there are increasing compromise with the world that they live in. And there are some things that he wants to correct. And if they do correct, Jesus will invite them to be fellow conquerors. He will reward us who hears his word and keeps this word and keeps this vision. And so here is an a outline of the entire book because some of you may be tuning in for the very first time and some of us may not know how to read this book because the most important principle to understanding God's Word, the Bible, is context, context, context. So the story thus far as we arrive here in this portion in chapter 6 to 8 is in 1 to 3, Jesus is Lord of His church. He tells this church, I know, I know, I know every of the seven letters, each of the seven letters begins with what Jesus knows about them, their geography, their history, and their present struggles. Then in four to five, we are taking, taken to see that Jesus is seated gloriously with God the Father in heaven, and all the angelic beings bow down and worship before the throne of God and the Lamb of God. He's the Lord of heaven. And chapter five ended with, who is worthy to un undo the scroll right, in which God will judge the world as He purifies His church and sends His church out in the last days between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. 
And I think that's the right and proper understanding of the last days between the first and the second coming of Jesus. And so in Revelation 6 to 8, he's going to declare that Jesus is Lord of the world and Lord of the world by the judgments he rightly sends to warn us before the final judgment when he comes. And so remember in chapter 5, it ended this way. And he sang a new song saying, Worthy are you, worthy is the Lamb of God who to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransom people for God. Where? Not just from one nation, Israel, but from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And so who is worthy to open this scroll that will save the church as God judges the world before Jesus returns to wind up human history? It is the Lamb of God. Jesus, he's the one who is worthy, worthy to save the world, worthy to save his church and to judge the world. And so the story thus far in this portion, the outline is that in chapter 6, there are the six seals. And then all of a sudden in chapter 7, there is a pause. We call that a heavenly pause as we are taken into heaven to see, oh, this is what it means. As God judges the world, there is a purpose that there are no wasted experiences even as God punishes the world. And then there's the seventh seal and we're going to take a look at this. So are you ready? This is a very important message and every time we listen to God's word, there are precious lessons for us. So the first seal. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come, and I looked, and behold, a white horse. And the rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. And so the first four seals, we are introduced to it, and there are horses, four different horses, with four different horsemen. What is the message that is here? The scroll that contains this the full account of God's plan of salvation. I saw and behold, and so the colours here, there's an Old Testament background and you will find that in the book of Zechariah, chapter 6, verse 1 to 3. And the first four are horses of colours like this. The first horse is white and the rider carries a bow. White was the colour of, white was the colour of, it's so clear, the colour of conquest. And this one went forth, right? not only conquering, but bent on conquest, which means there was a desire to keep conquering and conquering and conquering. And the first rider exists not simply to invade, but to conquer. And what does that mean? It's a symbol of nations having an insatiable desire to conquer other nations for their resources to get prosper themselves and to popper others, to prosper themselves and to popper others. You see, we all have different desires. Some of our desires are good. I have a desire to finish my studies as best I can. I have a desire to, to, to serve society as best as I can in whatever profession God gives me and opens the doors. Those are good desires. But we do have negative desires. And a desire to have more and more, the most destabilizing desire, the most disruptive desire, is, whether, is when a nation is never satisfied with themselves and seek to conquer others for their own prosperity while making the other poor. And so here is the first horse and the first rider. The second seal, when you open the second seal, I heard a living creature say, Come, and out came another horse, bright red, its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another and he was given a sword. If we read it with some care, see bright red, what is that a symbol of? Bright red is a symbol of war and a symbol of bloodshed. And so a symbol of war and bloodshed, to this rider was given the power to take peace. All this rider has to do is to take peace he doesn't make the war. And once you take peace from man's heart, 
mankind will do the rest. Which tells you that God's definition of war is not the presence of violence. God's definition of war, as we see here with the second seal and the second horseman and the second horse, is the absence of peace and the absence of goodwill. And so the second horse is a symbol of strife, of conflict, of disunity. And all it needs to do, it doesn't wage war, it just takes peace from our heart. And you just test it out for yourself. Whenever you lack peace in your heart, whenever you lack goodwill to somebody, a neighbour, your father, your wife, your children, therein will come a domestic war. It is true for us individually. It is true for us nationally, globally, historically. Black, the third seal, what is that a symbol of? And so this is colour symbolism. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a black horse. And its rider had a pair of scales in his hand, and I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures, a quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. And so if there's a connection between the first horse and the first horseman and the second, it, when there is war, right, war usually brings economic turmoil and upheaval because war dries up prices, there'll be a scarcity. I don't know, it, just when there is inflation, you go out now and $100, let's say you go out with $100, you come back and you came back from doing the marketing at the supermarket and say, uh, $100, what do you do buy? If uh, I came back to my wife, said, I, I said to her, oh, I, I came back and one, one bag of rice and one uh, pack of toilet rolls. And what do you think Mona will say? My goodness, $100 and all you have is a bag of 5 kg of rice and a packet of toilet rolls? Is that all you can get? In wartime, food is scarce. And that's what he's meaning here. But the scarcity is limited. It's not everywhere. The rich might still have access to this. So there will be scarcity and there will be inequality. And that leads us to the fourth seal. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the four living creatures, the fourth living creatures say, Come, and I look and behold a pale horse, and his rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him, and they were given authority over a fourth of the earth. To do what? To kill with the sword and with famine and with pestilence. And the word there, I'm told, is uh, literally death. Death from disease. Death from epidemics. And uh, human history and church history has been affected by the bubonic plagues and by the wild bees of the earth. So as you look at the four horses, it is war, it is famine, it is pestilence, it is just death with a big D death. And throughout 2,000 years of church history, uh, 2,000 years of history, between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus, the most devastating war was World War II, in which they estimate that 50 to 55 million civilians died all around the world. And the military deaths, you add another 21 to 25 million. That's a total of about 80 million people who died. 80 million people who died in World War II. You know what I was told when I was researching this? I've given the stats at various times. They think that there have been more national wars and death since World War II, which ended about 70 years ago in 1945. If that is true, friends, our past history and our present stories and now the tensions between America and China, the tensions between China and India, we are a world bent on conquest, a world bent on war because there's an absence of peace in our hearts. And once that is unleashed, there will be a scarcity, there will be scarcity of food, there will be inequality and death death, death, all around us is our common experience. And so the four horsemen and the four 
horses, tells us this. And the warning is, God unleashes four, as it were, man-made disasters that spring from our insatiable, that means bottomless appetite to do what? A bottomless appetite of never having enough and wanting more. We already have enough, but you still want more. And so, on a personal level, we must never underestimate what? We must never underestimate how powerful, how disruptive and how destructive it is to have this die-die-must-have desire. I've told this story many times, that on a personal level, when we don't confess to this, when we don't fess up to this, when we don't own up to this, we become a nightmare to live with. And so the wife discovered, the wife in this relationship discovered for an untimed time that the husband had committed adultery. But this time, it was it. It was the limit. She packed her bag, she left. The husband tried to persuade her and ask for forgiveness and a new beginning that he had learned his lesson and he, he would try better, try harder, do better. And she said to him before she walked out, you are impossible to live with. Why? Because you're not a man. You're an appetite. When we have this insatiable appetite of die-die, never enough, we make war in our hearts, we make war in our marriages, we make war in our nations because we want to prosper ourselves and pleasure ourselves above everyone else. Basically, we're saying to others around us to hack with you, a stronger word in the language of God's word in Revelation, to hell with this. It is me that matters most. And so as we go through COVID-19 and this pandemic, maybe this is the first thing for us to own up before we ask for life to return to its normalcy. This is a very bad normalcy to return to, that we're going to stop this never die-die, never satisfied. We must confess to God and ask for help. Then we read about the fifth seal. Then he opened the fifth seal and I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? What is this a picture of? This is the picture of all who believe in Jesus even though it costs them their life. The technical word is we are martyred because we believe in Jesus as God's saviour of the world, no matter what our circumstances. But to really understand this blood on the altar, under the altar, in the Old Testament, the blood of the animal that was sacrificed for the sins of God's people Israel was poured at the base of the altar. And you will find this in the book of Exodus chapter 29, verse 12. But here is not the blood of Christ, the Lamb of God that was slain, but the blood of Christians who follow Christ at all costs, beginning with those who are suffering in the Roman Empire. And they cry out for three things. They cry out for judgment on the inhabitants of this world. They cry out for salvation they cry out, how long, how long? And what is God's message to those who suffer, even to the point of laying down our life for Jesus? God's answer is, you have been washed by the blood of Christ. You are washed, but you have to wait for His final vindication of you. In that sense, we as Christians should be the best waiters no, I work one of my first jobs, actually my first job was to was a waiter in, in a restaurant in, in Malaysia, in uh, Pataling Jaya. It was a Nyonya restaurant and um, had no training. It was just training on the job. The mark of a good waiter, what, maybe we should ask the flip question. What's the mark of a bad waiter? The mark of, the characteristic, the nature of a bad waiter is, you you know, you want to Put in your order, you want to add something to your menu, you want to ask for more water, you're waving, waving, but the, the waiter is there, but no, the waver, the waiter never notices you. 
the mark of a good waiter I learned in my first waitering job that went on to do more waitering jobs while studying in Australia was your eye must always be watching for the customer. Your eye is always looking for what they need. For us, as God's church, we must always have the spiritual eagerness, the spiritual alertness as we look at the circumstances around us. What is God saying to us to our circumstances? The spiritual alertness to Jesus is Lord and Satan is against us, tempting us, accusing us, seducing us, persecuting us. So we are washed, but we are waiting. And the lesson for the suffering church and suffering Christians through 2,000 years of church history is we will not wait forever. We are waiting for our forever God to be with Him forever. And sometimes when we wait while suffering, it seems like forever, but the message here of God to His people, of Jesus to His church, you will not wait forever. You are waiting for the Alpha Omega God, the forever God who never forgets and forsakes His people. And so what should we be praying for? We should be praying and rehearsing as we go through this pandemic and our prayers and our rehearsing and our practice is we must learn to wait. Is that you? Is that me? Not praying for the quick ending of things, but praying for our strengthening and praying for God's perfect time for things to come to their appointed end. And it moves on to the sixth seal. And the sixth seal, he says this, When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree shed its, sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. If the, first, the four horsemen was about God bringing mainly man-made disasters, then it is here in the sixth seal, God unleashing natural disasters that seems to unwind the created orderly, the created order and the created rhythm of life that the sun and the moon, they are all different now. They don't perform their God-given created functions. And the mountains and the skies, they no longer fulfill their God-created functions. Everything is turned on its head. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks on the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, Fallen us, hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? What is the message here? Rather strange. Rather strange. Earthquake is a symbol of God shaking and overturning, usually, the pride of men. And you'll find it in prophets like Isaiah, where he speaks of earthquake shaking the very foundations of all our human security, Isaiah chapter 2. Right? The sun turning black is God, is God withdrawing light from the world. Red is the blood of judgment. So it will be terrifying for all without discrimination. So for God's judgment, no one escapes God's judgment. Yet, did you notice, regardless of rank or class, kings, the rich, the mighty to the slaves, no one is spared God's judgment, yet they will not turn to God's way of salvation, Jesus, the Lamb of God. For they would rather have the rocks fall on them than turn to find salvation and shelter in the Lamb of God. Which tells us, that we will be very stubborn and addicted to our way of getting out of crisis, to our way of getting out of judgment. And that's totally frightening. Did you read about two, three weeks ago as a result of what happened in America? Right? And then there were more and more protests, beginning with protests in Washington 
against racial discrimination and injustice, the black-white divide is still so strong in that land. And as they were protesting, I think not far from the White House, the National Guard was called in. It was a, it was a peaceful protest. Then all of a sudden, the order was given by the National Guard to break up this protest. And so things were fired, the, the crowds ran. And I read in, in a report that in running for, for shelter, the crowds, that wasn't violent at all. Somebody along that street, right, Lafayette Square, he opened his door and he asked them to just come in and find shelter as the National Guard chased down those, those protesters and he could fit about 80 into his house, into his lounge room. And so he was lauded, appreciated as a saviour for the 70, 80 people who found sanctuary and refuge as they were chased down that, that street, right? From the tear gas and the different things that they used to bring that, that protest to an end. And then he said in the interview, but I, I never meant to be a saviour. I never meant to be anybody. All I did was I heard noise, I heard a commotion, I opened my door and I saw people running, needing help. I just said, please come in. What do you call this? He was saying that he's an accidental saviour. And for an accidental saviour, he says, not much cost. I just opened my door. I didn't pay any price. Maybe a little bit of inconvenience, the risk of being robbed maybe. But I gave shelter to 70 people from possible danger. Jesus is not the accidental saviour. And his saving of us cost him his life, death on a cross, to take God's wrath for us. So for us, facing temporal judgment after temporal judgment in the seven seals, and then you read on in Revelation to the end, that the seven trumpets and the seven bowls, the cycles of judgment that God will allow into human history, and each one of them is to warn us to turn and to find salvation in Jesus and Jesus alone. Jesus is not the accidental saviour of the world. He is the promise and the fulfilling saviour of the world. He fulfilled God's promises. And we should give up on our own self-redemption that we think we can save ourselves from any crisis. And God forbid that we could think that we can save ourselves from the viruses that kill us. Friends, we must think about this and what God is saying to us. You know this whole thing about blessings and curses, blessings and judgment, have a very important history in God's Word. When God called His people Israel, He made them a pact, a covenant. And He says, as I send you into this promised land, the land of Canaan, you are to live distinctively. You are to worship me, Yahweh, as the true and living God. All the pagan idols that they worship, they are false gods and dead idols. But if you ever forsake me, the true and the living God who loves you, saves you, protects you, provides for you, and you run after the dead idols, I'm going to punish you. I'm going to curse you. And this lesson is a very important one because we can trace the storyline from the Old Testament to Christ to the book of Revelation. So Revelation, Deuteronomy 28, if you do not carefully follow all these words of this law, which are written in this book, and you do not revere this glorious and awesome name, the Lord, your God, Yahweh, is your God. Yahweh will send fearful plagues on you and your descendants, harsh and prolonged disasters and severe and lingering illnesses, just as it pleased the Lord to make you prosper and increase in number. So it will please Him to ruin you and to destroy you. You will be uprooted from the land you are entering to possess. Nothing could be more terrifying than this. I was just reading a daily Bible devotion and I chanced upon this chapter. Not chance, God gave it to me and it really tied into what we are learning here. God's story of blessings and curses, blessings and judgment, beginning always with His people Israel in the Old Testament and new Israel saved by Jesus. 
there's a history of we don't acknowledge God when He's blessing us. All these years, God bless us. And we thought that it's the wisdom of our own minds, our own intelligence, our own networking, our own strength of our hands that made us prosper. And God says, nonsense, rubbish. How proud and forgetful can you be? And He says that to us personally. He says that to us nationally, collectively. And when God is judging us, we won't acknowledge He's judging us. And when you read of the judgments in Deuteronomy unpacked through the whole Old Testament and now in Revelation, the judgments that come, didn't we see in the four horsemen? Oh, isn't it normal? That part of human history that we will have warfares, we will have famines, we almost normalise all this and say, this not, these are not judgments, these are not curses, they are. We cannot discern it when God is blessing us. We are so proud we don't acknowledge that God is blessing us. When we are so, and when, when God is judging us, we also cannot acknowledge it. And this is what we call a double jeopardy. Deuteronomy 28 finishes this way in verse 65 to 68. Among those nations you will find no repose, no resting place for the sole of your foot. Which means, Israel, if you try to find hope and redemption in other nations and their idols and their gods, there will be no rest for you. There Yahweh will give you an anxious mind. He will give you eyes weary with longing and a despairing heart. I don't know how you're feeling, but don't you think that's a pretty good, good description when we're going through crisis? That the Lord will give you an anxious mind, a weary eyes and a despairing heart? Anxious mind, weary eyes, a despairing heart? That sounds like a little bit like mental unwellness. The terror of God's judgments. Not just the externals of His judgments. The war, the famines, the scarcity, the inequalities, the pestilence, but also the minds and our emotions unhinged from God, decoupled from God. They are part of God's judgment. So please do not take it lightly when you and me struggle to sleep at night when we are so possessed and obsessed by anxieties and fears that this could possibly be part of God's ongoing judgment upon us in different eras before He brings the final judgment and salvation in Christ. So it will be a very great tragedy that after this disruption called COVID-19, we have moved from the early days where our supermarkets ran short of noodles and then uh, toilet rolls and then masks and now I said last week bicycles etc but we have no greater need for Jesus the promised Messiah not the accidental unintentional Messiah sent by God to destroy Satan and to save you from God's wrath and to wash you and me clean of sin to make us the children of God. If we are going to reopen and life is going to come back to normal and we haven't sorted this out, we are really in deep trouble. I pray for myself and I plead for you and pray for you wherever you are listening to this that you will take God's word seriously. And we head towards the end now. A heavenly pause. After this, I saw four angels, four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on the earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, and he called out with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. Message here, and in this portion we can only but summarise. The four angels, the four corners of the earth, the four winds, tells us one more time that no one will be safe and nowhere will be safe when God unleashes His judgment on us. Did you not notice that Boris Johnson Prime Minister gets it. Do you not notice that sportsmen are not spared? Do you not notice 
that there is no discrimination of rank anywhere when God brings disease and pestilence to the world that we live in. No one and nowhere will be saved from God's judgment. And I heard the number of the seal, 144,000 sealed from every tribe to the sons of Israel. And the 144,000, 12 tribes of Israel, 12 tribes plus the 12 elders, a symbol of the, the full number of the Old Testament church and the full number of the New Testament church, which tells you that in God's eyes, though we suffer and though we die martyred believing in Jesus, no one will be left behind. God is the original person who says this. Governments may say this. People may say this. Sometimes we as family, I'll never leave you behind. But it is God who says this and is able to carry out His intention with His church. From the Old to the New Testament, no one will be left behind. God makes no mistakes about His people. My sabbatical has spent in Boston, in Harvard, uh, one of the the other persons who was there on that fellowship or scholarship uh, was a, a priest who had come from Vietnam. And his family had run away from communist rule. And they came to a halfway place, right? I think it was Malaysia, waiting for their visas to get them to Canada or to America. And then finally, after waiting many, many years, the visa was granted. But because of an administrative glitch, the whole family got on that boat to a new beginning in Canada except for his brother who was not counted as part of the family. And he was saying to me, it was one of the saddest experiences of his life as the whole family sailed to a new beginning. They couldn't get that glitch changed. They couldn't plead to say that this is really my brother and they had to leave him behind with God, there'll be no administrative mistakes. His people, His chosen people, washed by the blood of Christ, He who began a good work in us will bring it to completion. So did you not notice in seven letters? He knows so much about our geography. He knows Laodicea. He knows Ephesus. He knows that the water here is lukewarm. He knows that there are pagan temples here. He knows that we have compromised with Balaam, with, with Jezebel. He knows of our faithfulness. He knows of our weakness. And so as God's people, we are never alone, never unnoticed, and never unrewarded. I do not know how you are feeling through this. Then the future may look very bleak for you. But as a child of God, as the church of God, May we hold fast that if I believe that Jesus is the Lord of history, I must believe He's the Lord of my story. And he, this, this Lord is not in the habit of forgetting us. This Lord will provide for us. And then it says, after this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, all the tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and for those who are more familiar with this passage, we may not know many passages in Revelation, but Revelation 7, 9 to 11, we got this song, Hallelujah to the Lamb of God. Hallelujah. And he sees, far from seeing a suffering church, a church that has been bullied, a church that has been butchered, where the blood of the martyrs are under the altar, he now sees a resurrected and invisible church. Worshipping God, salvation belongs to our God. And so you see, in chapters 1 to 4, God unleashes man-made disasters. In the seal number 5, uh, seal 1 to 4. In seal 5, God assures His people. In seal 6, He unleashes natural disasters through human history. But through it all, this pause in heaven is, I assure you that I will take you to worship me. I am the forever God and you will, you will not be waiting and suffering forever. And so, we must fast forward. We hear God's promise, we believe in the worship of Jesus, and we will worship Jesus we believe in. Sorry, the word is missing. We will worship the Jesus we believe in. Right here on earth, we believe in the worship of Jesus from moment to moment, from day to day, from crisis to crisis, from challenge to challenge. And in the end, this beautiful picture in Revelation 7, 
verse 9. Every tribe, every nation, every people, every language who believe in Jesus, we will worship Jesus face to face. And so we are not alone in our faithfulness, not alone in our weaknesses, not alone in our repentance, not alone. Is Jesus the Lord of your story? And so we are called to be a kingdom of priests that no matter how hostile this world, how sinful this world, how aggressive this world is towards us, we continue to look to Jesus, hold fast to His Word by His Spirit, and become more and more like Him in our day-to-day -day encounter. I could not believe it, you know, because I'm a movie lover, that in the last two, three months, I hardly watch a single movie because um, moving to online virtual ministries, a lot of things have to be spent writing it up, typing it up so that it's word perfect, getting this correct to minister to you week by week, the virtual cam, different things, ASK, preparing the ACM reports, writing about our history, etc. So after all of that last week, I finally said, boy, i got to unwind. And uh, somebody recommended a good movie, right? a good movie in which Tom Hanks acts a good day in the neighbourhood. And it's a, about the true life story of Fred Rogers, who ran a TV show in America from the 1980s to 2000, about 20 over years, mainly directed to children, but with very profound lessons of life for young and old. And he was known for his gentleness. He was known for his sincerity. He was known for his, just his, his winsome demeanour. And so a major magazine, Esquire, sent one of his top writers to interview him and to check him out. And this top writer, right, called Lloyd Vogel, was sceptical because he thought that Mr. Rogers, right, as he was called, was too good to believe. Mr. Too good... <laughs> Uh, Mr. Too Good, right, for anyone's belief. And so he went to spend time with him. He tried to dig up dirt on him. But he found that he was who he really was in his private life and on screen. And the secret to this man, Mr. Rogers, was that he was a believer in Jesus. And there's a scene in the movie in which you see him on his knees praying through every single person. And he prayed for Lloyd Vogel, who came from a very difficult background with a drunkard father, abusive father, who messed up his mother's life and messed up his own life and traumatised him. And he, and he was so traumatised by this, he could not forgive. But in knowing Mr. Rogers and his life, so changed by Christ, his life was changed. Sometimes as we live in this world, friends, people look at us sincerely praying to God, sincerely holding on to Jesus, and we th they think we are too good to believe. This Chris is too good to believe. This Pastor Jeff Craig is too good to believe. Is he for real? Are you for real, ARPC? That you're really doing all these things? We have Let's Carnival and we hardly charge people $2 for a coupon when it's worth $30. We do things and we don't charge anything for most things that we do here. It's too good to believe, no friends. Because we believe in a good God, the Good Shepherd, the Lord of history, the Lord of our stories, we must never tire of faith in Jesus and becoming like Jesus. So during Good Friday and Easter, before the circuit breaker, and we didn't know the circuit breaker was coming, I was so compelled and convicted by the Spirit to, to just go and have my devotion at East Coast Park. And then, then, you know, I just flipped up my phone and, and wrote a poem because it was just gripping my mind and gushing out from my heart. And I, I, I wrote this, right? What did I write? A very important poem to summarize our time together. And what was the poem? Let me get it to you. Okay. It's about the paradoxes we need to sort out to get our vision of Jesus correct. And why is it important? Let me go back to a few slides as we end with Revelation, the final message. Revelation 22 ends with this. 
Behold, I am coming, Jesus says, bringing my reward with me, my recompense with me, to repay each for what he has done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life, that they may enter the city by the gates. And outside, if you do not believe in Jesus and believe in him alone as your saviour, then outside are the dogs, the sorcerers, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who, look at the language, who loves and practices falsehood. The very definition of idolatry is this, is anything or anyone we trust and desire more than God himself. And God has consistently warned his people, Israel in the Old Testament, to the seven churches, warning them of Balaam, of Jezebel, of the Nicolaitans, of sexual immorality and idolatries. Please don't fall into this. They seem so good, they look so good. When you bite into it, it is hell. They look like heaven, but when you bite into it, it's hell. And so is God disrupting the whole world and disrupting our world of our pride? and our pride in our idolatries, that left to ourselves, we can still make paradise on earth. And God is saying to us as we end, be merciless with idols. Be merciless with idolatries. Be merciless with immoralities. Right? You know how New Zealand, the first country to come out COVID-free, they went in with two, two-sided philosophy. Go early, and go hard. Shut the country down. Let's get rid of this virus. And we're the first one to pronounce COVID-free, but unfortunately for them, two more cases appeared because of tourists that came from England. For us, to be sin-free and death-free, we go early, we go hard with any sin in our life, with any idol and idolatry in our life. Don't dilly-dally with sin. The moment there is temptation, you recognize it for what it is, you confess it for what, what it is, and you repent of it for what it is. You embrace Jesus' humility. You no longer take part in your pride that you can do sin and cover up sin. You love God's glory, not your own. And so the poem that God convicted me to write, let me share with you in ending as a way of dealing with our idolatries by sorting out our paradoxes. And what are our paradoxes? Of course, this was written Good Friday and Easter. He is risen, so they say. Disciples drop him. Rulers taunt him. Soldiers mock him. Crowds jeer at him. We reject him. Jesus, a man experiencing hell on the cross and promising others heaven, Today you will be with me in paradise. This is the Jesus paradox. Will you humbly take up his offer of everlasting paradise? Or will you proudly create your own crumbling utopia? As we walk through and reopen our economies and walk back to normalcy, can you try to answer that question in your heart? As I've tried to answer it and will answer it, ask it and answer it for the rest of my days. A mere man experiencing hell, promising heaven. He's risen, so they say, from the cross to the empty tomb. God is most seen where he's most unseen. Our pain paradox. So have you sorted out your pain paradox that you're going to suffer and I'm going to suffer? That Jesus is glorified most through suffering? Are you on the pain glory path? Or will you stubbornly choose the maximum pleasure in life, minimum pain, and discover the ultimate distaste of your vain glory choice? So you're going to carry on with this? I'm going to carry on with this? That my unspoken philosophy of life is max pleasure, minimum pain? No, friends. The pain-glory paradox is something we have to sort out. And last but not least, he's risen what do you say? The prospect of dying from a virus may pass. 
but the reality of dying from our viral pride against God will not. And pride paralyzes us from what? In day-to-day living, pride paralyzes us from loving loved ones, forgiving wrong ones, reconciling precious ones. Humility empowers us to come down from our high horses, to cower before the cross, to worship at the feet of Jesus. Why? For he is risen for God's eternal glory and for our paradoxical stories. So God says, and whatever God says, we hear, we keep unto his glory. Have you sorted out the paradoxes, so-called, of the Christian life? You must. If not, you're not going to come out of this spiritually new unto God's glory. And so a song we've been singing like an anthem throughout the whole Revelation series, and rightly so, is, Is He Worthy? Who is worthy to undo the scrolls and to judge the world and to save His church? There is only one, our meek and humble Saviour, who loves us despite our rebellion and loves us for God's glory. Allow me to lead us in closing prayer. And you may want to take this as a sacred moment wherever you are, in your homes, where we're listening to this. That it is possible for you to be kneeling in response to this God that we have so graciously seen with our spiritual eyes. As the curtains, curtain is drawn back, that we behold the splendor of God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God that was slain for us. We may want to stand. Whatever is your posture may be a reverent posture, acceptable to God through Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, we bow before you and confessing knowledge with all of our hearts. For you search our hearts and there's nothing we can hide from you. That so often time, you bless us and we are totally ignorant of that, ungrateful for that. And so oftentimes, when you judge us, we won't acknowledge that this is your judgment. Woe to us if we do not see, when we choose not to see. But thank you that you grace us and your ultimate grace is the gift of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by his sacrificial love paid the price for us. You set out, Heavenly Father, to bless us and that offer of true and everlasting blessing has come through Jesus, the worthy one who can save the church and judge the world. We pray that we will humbly hear your word and humbly keep your word. And no matter how difficult it is for us, no matter what the scepticism and cynicism of a world, thinking that we are holy, holy and too good to be true, we want to turn to you and ask for your Spirit's empowerment to live as a kingdom of priests, to be such a shining light in a world that is so broken, broken in our hearts, broken in our homes, broken in our nations, broken globally, where the insatiable desire to conquer, to make war, to have no peace in our hearts, just rules everything. And so we turn to you, Lord Jesus, and thank you. And we pray that we will sort this out once and for all, and for the rest of our life, that believing in you, the paradoxes that are there, that you who died on the cross are able to offer us heaven. And may we not think that is foolish, but that is the greatest offer for us. And as we suffer, may we know that we don't suffer forever, but we will worship you, the forever God. And in all of this, we seek your glory. We pray to be different unto you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you all for joining us as we have studied the first portion of Revelation and hope that the messages from God's Word have struck home to your heart. If you need any help in your spiritual journey, we exist to help you. 
you have given your life to Christ, we want to help you in your journey, join our Discovering Christianity. And week by week here, we're going to share that with you. And if you need any help in terms of prayer or advice or counsel or ministry, we'll connect with you virtually online. The Lord bless you and keep you. For all our members, don't forget the ACM. And don't forget to um, pray and prepare, pray and vote. And you vote by proxy. The Lord bless you and keep you until we meet you again. Amen.